0: Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Welcome to this very special centre, part of the Canberra Writers Festival, here at the fabulous National Library of Australia. And I thank um, the both organisations and our volunteers for making it possible and for getting us all together here this evening. And I want to begin by acknowledging the Gunawala and Gambri people of Canberra and region, um, their past, the present and the future people of this region. I might add a special um, word of sorrow for whatever my ancestors did when they arrived on the Monero Plains in 1840. Uh, as part of displacing of the peoples from this region at that time. We uh, are privileged today to be at the launch of a very special book, one that certainly uh, I'm delighted to be uh, here at the launch uh, of, and uh, one that's um, representative of so much that makes us Australians feel good about ourselves. Uh, I'm pleased by the way that it is full of acknowledgements of the original Australians Uh, and there's no world heritage site in Australia that isn't part of the sovereign grounds of the Aboriginal people in Australia going back 40 or 60,000 years. I'm going to start in this session on World Heritage Sites of Australia by asking Peter Valentine, whose work it is, if he might talk about getting this book together a little, and then uh, after five or ten minutes, we'll have a conversation about the book and its contents, and then uh, before the hour's up across to you to ask uh, questions uh, and to be involved in some conversation. So um, please feel free when that time comes. But first, it's a great pleasure to ask Peter Valentine if he'd come up and talk about this beautiful book uh, which is being produced by the, the National Library of Australia but talks about the, the cream of the cream, as they call it, the world heritage areas of Australia, uh, how they came to be, um, which, what they are, and where we might be going to with the protection of the most special cultural and natural places in our nation. So thank you, Peter. I'll ask you, you to come, come and um, just have a talk from here, if you would. Thank you, Bob.
1: Uh, What a delight to see so many interested people here tonight, Uh, fantastic. I'd like to begin though by acknowledging myself, three, four wonderful science and conservation warriors who passed on during the period that this book was produced. Um, It was sad to say farewell, but today I want to really say uh, thank you for their contribution to this. Now, the names will be familiar to you. First, I'll mention John Sinclair, who was so responsible for raising awareness and contributing to the conservation of Fraser Island Kigari Uh, that has now become a World Heritage Area. And um, John had great struggles in leading the battles to protect it and save it from unwanted demolition. I also mention Peter Hitchcock. You cannot think about rainforest protection in Australia without that name being central to the work done the science done and the battles fought to achieve an outcome which leaves us now with three wonderful world heritage areas focused on rainforests. So Peter had significant role in Tasmania. He had a significant role in science and conservation in the Gondwana rainforests of northern New South Wales and southern Queensland and again, of course, in the Tropics World Heritage Area. And it was sad to, for him to pass prematurely. He was working on a book on the rainbow gum, uh, a fabulous eucalypt, and uh, hopefully that will come out uh, eventually. The third person I mention is a, a, a strong personal link was Margaret Thorsborn. And Margaret and her husband, Arthur, uh, led a wonderful campaign for protection in the Hinchinbrook Island area. Uh, they collectively wrote a book about how uh, that island, which really promoted its protection, and uh, she too passed on in that period. The fourth person I want to mention um, has a political connection but deserves to be celebrated for the work done across a number of World Heritage sites, and that is uh, former Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, who was courageous in battling for conservation outcomes and who led a lot of thinking around that during the time uh, he was in politics. Uh, oftentimes, we, we ordinary people um, find many reasons to criticise our political characters and it's nice of us to acknowledge the good work that is done by many and in this case Bob was outstanding in terms of conservation contributions across a number of years. The book came together in an interesting way perhaps. Uh, um, I had a, a, I've had a very long history with world heritage Um, both in Australia and many other countries and I've enjoyed an opportunity to um, work with many people around the world on world heritage and and so I think I became reasonably well known for that work in certain circles and that's mainly in the IUCN, in the World Commission on Protected Areas and in some individual world heritage sites. So when the National Library had an inspired thought that a book on our World Heritage sites might be valuable, um, they sought someone to write it. So the idea came out of the National Library of Australia and the publishing group had sought advice from the chair of the IUCN Australian Committee Penny Figures, uh, who herself is, is a well-known woman, uh, conservationist and leader. And uh, I had worked with Penny on the international committee of IUCN for five or six years. And she immediately said, well, there's only one person that should do it, and she put my name in forward. And the National Library Contacted me and said, Would I be willing? Well, I had been planning. No, I would say planning is too strong a word. I've been thinking about writing a book on World Heritage for some time. But as some of you may appreciate, you know, there's a lot between thinking a book is a good idea and actually doing something to produce it. So it was swirling around in my head. I knew what I wanted to write. And um, I had of course been writing about World Heritage and I had established a postgraduate program at my university on World Heritage, so I had a lot of material buzzing around in my head and I thought I knew the best sort of book to write. It wasn't this book, (laughs) I, I have to say. I'm delighted to say that this book came about very much as a collaborative outcome between the. National Library of Australia publishing team and editing team and my original thoughts. Uh, And I'm really glad it's not the book I wanted to read, I want to write because now I see the final product, I I think this is going to be much more interesting to a lot of people. I have a, a feeling that what I had originally thought I might write would have been well regarded by a handful of people and thoroughly read by academics and others, but I am passionate about reaching out to the wide community, the community that actually owns the World Heritage Area, and you don't do that by writing academic pieces. You, you do that by combining um, what might be called a popular style of writing, thoroughly factual of course, but with appropriate illustrations and stories that help everyone connect to those places. And that's what we've collectively set out to do. Could I also ask the audience a question, Bob? Go right ahead. Does anybody here know the name of the first site to go onto the national heritage list? Uh, No, that's not the first one to go on the national heritage list. Have a go Well done inside knowledge, of course inside knowledge All right, but the reason I'm asking that question of course ladies and gentlemen is that uh, budge BIM is our 20th world heritage area So when we went to the printer in December budge BIM was on our tentative list and had been nominated by the Australian government for listing, but it hadn't got to the committee. So there was no way we could include it as one of our World Heritage Sites before the committee made its decision in July. So the decision was made only last month. And of course the book was well and truly printed before then. Luckily I was able to talk a bit about it because one of the chapters deals with the future World Heritage Sites and because it was on our tentative list, one of only three on our tentative list, uh, then it was able to get a bit of a Guernsey, so there's, there is information about it.
0: Peter, what's budge Beam?
1: Oh, sorry, budge Beam, yes. Um, I just assumed, sorry, my apologies on that. I assumed everyone knew Budge Bim, but Budge Bim is a splendid site, and as I say, the first site to be to entered on our national heritage list, so that tells you something about the importance of Budge Bim. It's a, an Aboriginal cultural site that is a site of 6,000 years of continuous settlement and aquaculture practices. So it's in Victoria, and it is a site where the Aboriginal people who lived there established eel farms that produced a continuous supply of eels and allowed the community to develop permanent residential occupation of the land and live in stone cottages. You know, they, This was a very different style of settlement than was possible in many of the other regions of Australia. And we now have all the evidence we need to be able to track that back over a 6,000 year period. So it's a volcanic environment, waterways and springs coming through it, lots of water areas that could be dammed and managed, and uh, permanent supply of eels that were smoked and so on. So um, a fantastic example of how the culture of Australian Aboriginal people is amazing in a global context, and that's just one site. But, um, and that, to get that on the world heritage list was uh, an exercise led by the traditional owners at Budge BIM. They very much wanted it and and were happy to see the result uh, last month when the committee said, "Wow, we'll have that, thank you. So, I should have mentioned that.
0: Yes, thank you. Thanks, Peter, come and have a seat. Mentioning Margaret Thorsburn, uh, I don't know how many people knew Margaret, but uh, it's one of the classic photos in Australian environmental history. This very well done up lady with a handbag with a bulldozer up there and she's going like that in the...
1: uh, At Oyster Point.
0: Yes, in amongst the mangroves. Exactly.
1: At the time Margaret was about 80, 75 or 80, yes.
0: You mentioned Judith Wright a couple of times in the book too, there's a... Indeed. She was finally a Canberra resident, of course, in, in Braidwood and did uh, so much towards protecting the Great Barrier Reef.
1: It uh, was um, interesting, Bob, when, when I was uh, teaching at James Cook University, when I first went there, I wanted to find out a little bit about um, the community's knowledge and awareness of conservation. So I had a number of students go out and do some interviews of people at Mission Beach. And one of the questions I asked was, you know, could they name any conservationists? And I got, amongst the answers I got, w- 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 some terrific responses to that, but one of them was a guy by the name of John the B U-W-S-T. And having fresh got off the plane from West Australia, I wasn't familiar with that historical context of North Queensland, but he was the founder of the Rainforest Protection Society back in the the 1950s in northern Queensland and he and Judith worked on the coral reef salvation as well. So both rainforest and reef were being um, argued about way back then and John proved to be a fantastic uh, uh, warrior for conservation in that region.
0: Because most Australians wouldn't know but it's in your book that the Great Barrier Reef was almost all taken up by oil drilling uh, um, surveying or exploration exploration lines. Yes, yeah, in the 1970s, as, as recent as, as that. As recently
1: as that, it was one of the. It was a shock when I first got to North Queensland to discover that this wonderful Great Barrier Reef um, had been targeted for mining, well, gas exploration, oil drilling, and so on and. And indeed, it, maybe it set the tone for later events, but, you know, the Premier was really much involved in that. That's, so we had a Premier, Premier, Joe. A Premier Joe involved with, <laughs> with the exploration for, you know, obviously something that couldn't go ahead and, and, and still have the Great Barrier Reef staying as a, a conservation area.
0: Mm. Why did you go to James Cook University, which is in Townsville, isn't it? Yes. We're, the, Yes, the, it,
1: in those days it was only in Townsville. Now there's, a, uh, there's also a campus in uh, Cairns. Um, and I would have liked to have been in Cairns, I think, when I first went there, because Townsville seemed so dry and Cairns seemed so green and lush. But I came to study rainforests. That, that was my passion. I'd been, um, I started my life as a farmer and spent Ten years farming and... Where was that? In West Australia at a little place called Bremer Bay right on the boundary of Fitzgerald National Park. Beautiful place. A gorgeous part of the world. Mm -hmm. It should be a world heritage area. The floristic diversity there is the greatest in the world. It's never been packaged and nominated, but also what is left is fragments. Most of the area, much of the area has been cleared for agriculture, so there's fragments. But there's enough fragments you could certainly put forward a case and indeed there are many groups who who are trying to encourage the the, uh, nomination of that area for its floristic diversity. Paul and I spent a night at um, Point Anne, is it? Yes, Point Anne, yes. Being kept awake all night by the whales. Yes, (laughs) that would have been in winter because It was. the the whales come right into the bay there. Uh, It's a spectacular part of the country, very few people Uh, go there, except in a brief period of summer, there's a bit of activity. What about that Queen Victoria thing? Yeah, Hakia Victoria, yes. (laughs) Fabulous. The the plants there are brilliant, so there's a real opportunity for acknowledging that. And IUCN, in a publication they made in 1982 about future world heritage, identified that floristic region as a lay-down
0: air for... World Heritage listing. That's the southwest. The southwest going province. really nearly across to the to the Nullarbor, isn't it? It goes yes. It goes
1: well east of uh, Esperance, so you've got mm-hmm. Cape Arid, which is the only home of the Western Ground Parrot now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much floristic diversity
0: there. Peter, uh, the, uh, what's Abu Simbel got to do with all this?
1: Ah, Abu Simbel. <laughs> yes. that, that goes back a few years. Um, I wasn't around at the time, but not active I, think you were. I was alive, you're quite right, yeah. i was but um, Egypt had all this that this this dream of building uh the Aswan dam on the Nile, so that would be to source water for expanding crops to support a growing population and the Western world loved that idea, so they were being supported into this but by damming the Nile, a lot of the cultural heritage of Egypt was going to be buried beneath the waters of the dam, and while Egypt on the one hand wanted to have the dam as a development opportunity, it also recognised it needed to do something about the heritage, so it put out a plea to um, the United Nations, to UNESCO specifically, to get assistance to see if some of that heritage couldn't be rescued before. What, what was there? Ah, what was there was this uh, wonderful series of built heritage that were uh, temples and, and uh, statues of magnificent proportions that go back over the Egyptian uh, empire. And, you know, um, thousands of years old, wonderful works, um, but it, much of it, if not all of it, was going to be buried beneath the waters. So that request to UNESCO was to <laughs> to try and get them to help. And so they put out a plea uh, to the wealthier nations of the world to see what could be done. And those countries came together and helped the Egyptians. So on the one hand, the wall was being built and the waters rising. And on the other, rescue teams were amazing as it seems, carving up all of these ancient buildings precisely in a way that would allow them to resurrect them on (laughs) drier land. So they were relocated, they couldn't stay in the same site but they were relocated. And that was a wonderful success story funded uh, largely by um, philanthropic contributions because uh, people of the world Uh, acknowledged the the value of that heritage and wanted to help to preserve it. And they are still there now as part of, they eventually did become World Heritage. But that action led UNESCO to help develop the, the World Heritage Convention. So that was the first step towards having the convention which we now find so
0: valuable. And that was, Australia was an early signatory in 1974 to the World Heritage Convention. Do you think Lake Pedder had a, a role in that or do you think that was just the time it was going to happen? I mean, there's this rebound, wasn't there, from the yes. loss of Lake Pedder in Tasmania uh, and the Whitlam government was there saying, well, we, we didn't stop that, but...
1: I, I think the connection in Australia was very strong and that the Australian government of the time uh, strongly supported the World Heritage Convention, probably not perhaps appreciating what it might mean, but uh, the idea that we would come together to cooperate and reach a conservation outcome, uh, that was inherent in the first statements about this convention. Um, And yes, Australia was very enthusiastic, perhaps surprisingly. uh, I think we were the seventh country in the world to sign up for that convention. And although we weren't in the countries that put forward nominations for the first round, we very soon followed. So, you know, the and, first and sites were Galapagos, um, Yellowstone, you know, they were, they were places that would be obvious that anyone could draw up a list of... Was, was the Taj
0: Mahal in again? that first lot or, that, or did that come later?
1: Um, no, it was, it was a subsequent.
0: And what were the first, there were three first Australian ones in 1981. In 1981, that's right. So our first ones,
1: um, and perhaps if I can relate a slightly tongue-in-cheek story about this relating to the book. I, uh, we had discussions about the sequence in which we would present these World Heritage sites, so you could do it alphabetically. You could do it by state, uh, what, was the wa- what was the way to do it? And I wanted to do it in the order in which they were listed. That seemed to me to be pretty good. So then here I'm faced with this dilemma, 1981, three sites. Great Barrier Reef, Kakadu, and Willandra Lakes, three sites. Which one to be first? Well, I confess here that I had, in my heart, I wanted Kakadu. I couldn't see us not having Kakadu as the number one and the reason for that is that I'm absolutely committed to the notion that Aboriginal cultural heritage is central to who we are and we have a long way to go to grapple with that but I wanted Aboriginal heritage to be front and foremost in our thinking about world heritage. and. Um, Anyway, I spent a bit of time at the World Heritage Centre a few years ago. I was a World Heritage Fellow there. Where's that? Um, In uh, the World Heritage Centre's in Paris, Mm -hmm. and uh, they they are the the sort of um, executive arm that looks after things for the committee. So there, and that's where all the repository of information, when someone makes a nomination nowadays, especially if it's Russian, they come in with a suitcase full of stuff and deposit it on the table. So that's all get archived there and I had been through the processes, and I knew that every time a nomination comes in, it, it's given a unique number. This is a UNESCO number is given to that nomination, and that holds that number for the rest of time. So anyway, I, I had a look at the numbers given to those three sites, and Kakadu got the lowest number. That means it was the first one numbered. Now, so. That gave me an excuse to have Kakadu as number one. <laughs> yes. So there you go. I mean, that don't tell anyone. This is, this is <laughs> private amongst ourselves here. Um, it could have been, of course, and I think another author might have said, oh, no, obviously the Great Barrier Reef. That would be the one. Um, there's lots of reasons you might say that. But I had, I thought, better reasons well, so you do, Kakadu. and of course,
0: you have a marvellous description of the... ...dreamtime person actually making the first paintings. Yes. And, yeah. and, and the ev- evolution of that painting in, in the Kakadu that yes. we, all, we all know so much about these days.
1: I, I'm glad you mentioned that, Bob, really. Um, when I, when I wrote the first version of that chapter, I, I should say, by the way, um, in my relationships with the National Library as the publisher, um, they asked me to send a pilot chapter, you know, because they wanted to know whether I could write, and they wanted to know whether I could write anything they were interested in, and they wanted to see whether it would work, so fair enough. So I did uh, write the draft, and deliberately chose Kakadu, because that, I, I, I have to have Kakadu in this <laughs> first. So um, anyway, I drafted that and I gave it, luckily I, uh, my wife is my first reader, and, uh, but I gave it to a friend of mine who's an artist and a wildlife photographer, a wonderful man. And um, he read it and said, oh look, that, that's great, but you know, it doesn't connect you need to think about how you're going to connect to the audience. And it was he who suggested that I I use the opening section to somehow make a connection with the place to the reader. And that
0: worked with you in Kakadu, that's what I decided... Well, you also... I'm sorry to jump in, but you also have a beautiful vignette with each site about your personal experience of... of seeing that site or, or what it meant to you when you you, you got there, that, going from That's true From the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, when, when how old were you then? 16 16, <laughs> yeah, so at least 20 years ago Yeah, something like <laughs> that ought <of. laughs> uh,
1: Yes, so each chapter starts off with this piece of imaginative writing, so it's not Uh, descriptive about the place but it's something that I tried to imagine happening at the site so for Kakadu I was nervous about this I have to say because you know I'm putting myself in a position of writing something that is happening you know 10,000 years ago and as an indigenous person doing this and in fact I was so concerned I I sent it to the Kakadu board, the draft of it, to see whether the Indigenous cultural heritage folk would see this as being okay because I was worried. I didn't want to presuppose anything there. Anyway, um, but I wanted to imagine and I had in my mind because I'd been to the art galleries and I wanted to capture that and the wetlands, it it just all comes together. And in the artwork it's brilliant because um, that x-ray style artwork lets people show you exactly what it is the organism looks like and is made of shows you the intimate knowledge they've got etc and the products of course are beautiful art uh, but it, the stories behind them are Well you've also stronger. got Bill Nagy there haven't you
0: Indeed yes that the last speaker of his language Yes Bill and 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 a translation into English of of that fabulous little poem or or, or piece of prose about we are are all one alive with this planet and it's alive with us. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I I was very lucky um, um, in 1989, (laughs) I I went to Kakadu and I had with me two uh, wonderful. colleagues, uh, one who was a mentor um, of mine for so many years and, um, and also uh, Paul Leopold, who was Aldo Leopold's son. And at the time, he was professor at Princeton University, professor of biology, and he and Larry Hamilton, who was the other professor, came on a visit. And they had been very kind to me when I visited them. And so they said, we want to go to Kakadu. So I said, okay, <laughs> we'll go. So we did, we had a trip there, but we, we had a, um, one of the guys who's no longer with us though, who ran the Aboriginal side of the management there, Steve Zabo. he did wonderful work, but on the interpretation side. And he asked us to give a seminar to the rangers there. And, and uh, so uh, we did that and, um, uh, one of the treats of my life was that Bill Nagy took us to his country and sat us down and talked about what it was like and how it meant to him. And
0: wasn't he an incredible, a, an amazing human presence?
1: presence. Yes, exactly. There's mm. a presence there that is hard to fathom. And uh, now that that made a big impact on me, yeah. just seeing Bill. And then I had. Uh, I had read his little, uh, he'd written a little book in which he expresses this wonderful connectivity between people and life. The, you know, so no barriers between us and other organisms, we are all one. And I had a, a follow up with that, you know, with Michael Archer. M- most people would probably know Michael Archer for his work at Riversley on the fossils. And I think working with fossils, you you learn about deep time. Another World Heritage site Another World Heritage site So I went out there uh, to redraft the statement about why it was important Um, The original nomination was seen to be too slim And they wanted more So anyway, uh, why don't you get Michael Archer to do it (laughs) He did the first one, it's fabulous Hmm. Anyway, it was a job I did But... Uh. Luckily, we went out there when Michael Archer was out there with a team of volunteers doing work and it was terrific. We would sit around the campfire at night and, you know, talk about things as you do yeah. and he used an expression um, to describe life as, as this, this great biological blob of which we are just a small part. And he saw that through time and it stuck with me because I, I realised then that it's it, that's, that's true that we are all connected. We've got living connections that go back. And later on when I was doing work on Shark Bay where the stromatolites were a fundamental focus of why that became there, these cyanobacteria that built the stromatolites at... Shark Bay, another world heritage, another Star. world heritage area, mm. three and a half billion years ago, they were the only forms of life on earth, and they could live then no other life forms could we couldn 't live there because the atmosphere is principally carbon dioxide, <laughs> and so. We're trying to get back there,
0: but we haven't yeah, got there yet.
1: We've got a long way to go, luckily, in that regard. But those cyanobacteria, you know, every one of us is descended from those. They, they are our ancestors, they are our real ancestors. And what was
0: their big gift to
1: us? Their big gift to us was oxygen. Yes. So <laughs> they took the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and converted it, to, and also in the seawater, and converted it to oxygen in the air and oxygen in the seawater and allowed other life forms after. It took them a billion and a half years, but you know, they did it eventually, persistence pays, and so they got there in the end. And therefore, other little critters could emerge from this beginning. But if you you just think about this for a minute, you know, your, your DNA Continuously, you're alive now and there's a living connection to you right back to those cyanobacteria There's no cut in it, there's no break Mm. in that line You are here now and because you're here now you have a living connection all the way back To those cyanobacteria, lots of other things
0: in between Well one of those things that was in between and you terrified me by describing (laughs) Is a meat-eating kangaroo (laughs) (laughs) Now (laughs) <laughs> and what's more, I don't know if you realise this, but he's, he's got a depiction of this creature or at least the fossils of it. But at Pernalulu, you have Northwest Western Australia, World Heritage Site, there's a great picture of the Cathedral Arch, is it? Yeah, Cabin, yeah. Cabin, yeah. And on the right hand side of that picture, there coming out of the rocks, is this meat-eating kangaroo? You have a look. You have a look. And anybody who buys a book will see that. But uh, it brings me to the question, <laughs> brings me to the question, Peter, who took the photographs?
1: Oh, now, the illustrations are a, are a critical part of the book. And um, uh, one of the nice things about this relationship with the National Library as the publisher is they were very keen to use some of the material in their collection to illustrate the book. Um, And then I, in addition to that, which is, there's some terrific stuff there, I mean, the cover, like, I... Who took that? One of your friends. (laughs) Uh, Peter Dombrovskis donated Mm. his brilliant photographs to the National Library of Australia. And so, and I didn't have a say in the cover photo, I was so delighted when I saw it. It was perfect, an absolutely perfect choice for that. Um, First, Peter Ross, he takes such brilliant photos anyway, and I know you were involved in a book of his photographs that are collected here. Yes, I wrote
0: it. Oh, well, there you go. Yes, I I did write a... You did. ...a text for a book of his photographs during the Franklin campaign. Yes,
1: yeah, and...
0: and, uh, Oh, more recently No, the the recent one. Oh, yes, he's definitive...
1: The National Library's definitive book of his pictures. Beautiful. Anyway, I was so glad we were able to use this one on the cover. Um, A a lot of the other photos came from various sources. This is the
0: Frankland range in the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area, isn't it? It is indeed, Which is the only World Heritage Area site of over a thousand in the world which has got the word wilderness in it. There's another unique element to the Tasmanian
1: Wilderness World Heritage Area, also. Not quite unique. Um, As probably most people know, the the World Heritage Committee set up 10 criteria that they use to decide whether a property that's been nominated by a country that's party to the convention could be listed. And every property has to meet at least one of those criteria. Uh, So there are 10 of those criteria that countries could use to put forward places. Um, and mostly sites go on with maybe, not many go on with just one. There are some, but not many, mostly two. Um, In Australia, a number of our sites go on with with more than that, maybe three or four. Um, But across the more than 1,000 sites, there's only two sites that have seven of the ten criteria met. Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area is one and Mount Taishan in China is the other. There are no others with more. So this again was an outstanding choice for a cover.
0: Well another thing just struck me that uh, in this last six months or so there's two World Heritage sites have suffered huge damage from fire. One of those is the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area and I was looking at a picture last night of a Tasmanian blue gum, which uh, is a massive uh, girth, mm, mm. Uh, which is now dead. It was there before European, before for, um, Abel Tasman sailed down the coast of uh, Tasmania with the Aborigines wondering whether he's going to come ashore or not. Uh, and Notre Dame, of course. Uh, but. Um, why do you think Notre Dame became a global sensation whereas the burning of these ancient forests in Tasmania was a, was a big story locally, but that's it.
1: Yeah, that, that's, I find that a really interesting question. Um, and I did have, when that happened, there were a lot of conversations around the ridges about this, the response, the instantaneous response the large amounts of money being offered to deal with it and in comparison the relative lack of concern about some of the severe threats going on with natural sites particularly around the world although there are cultural sites also being damaged by war and various other things so um, and in one way Bob that's one reason I wanted to produce this book I I really think people don't have a good enough appreciation of the, the magnificence of these natural and cultural heritage sites we have in Australia.
0: I, I, I think, L- like the Sydney Opera House, which is described by the global authorities as one of one of the great buildings of humankind of, of all times. Of all time, yes, indeed.
1: Yeah, that it's it, very. I I had to. Uh, I enjoyed working on that because it's not my field. I'm not an architect. I I don't really know much about that area. So I had to do a lot of work to get to grips with it. I read a lot of material about the Sydney Opera House. Um, I had spent time there and I was lucky to get some good insights from wonderful people that I worked with on the Australian Heritage Council. But the thing is, when it was built, it was suddenly, outrageously, an amazing building. Everyone could immediately recognise it, and the Australian Government immediately nominated for World Heritage Listing. Back in 19... Uh, it was in 1980, I think it was. Uh, Even
0: before the Barrier Reef and so on were yes, listed. Yes, it, it, was, it was straight away,
1: they took one look at the, at the finish at the time of the opening and let's put it on the World Heritage List, because we just had it available to us at that point. And um, the advisory body to the World Heritage Committee said, well, look, you know, this is a bit pregnant. It's only a year old, and we don't really know whether this is going to be brilliant or a disaster. <laughs> I think most people looking at it said this is brilliant, but so they, they said, no, we're going to defer this and it was deferred seriously because it was well, another they've done 20 that odd on years on a
0: number of occasions, haven't they? They deferred listing and said you you do this further work on it or yes. Let's see what's going to happen.
1: It's one of the it's one of the tools of um, it's one of the tools of uh, the World Heritage Committee that they can they get a nomination in, they get uh, expert advice from the advisory committees, uh, the International Council on Monuments and Sites and uh, the International Union of the Conservation and Nature. So they're the two advisory bodies to give them technical advice on each nomination uh, appropriate to their skills. And ICOMOS was the one that
0: advised the committee, no, it's too early. I t- must say, it says, uh, and quite rightly, that the judges for the Sydney... It was a worldwide competition for the Sydney Opera House with no limits, including no limits on spending. And the judges unanimously selected Jorn Utzen's fantastic architectural entry. Uh, Insider knowledge here because uh, uh, Claudio Alcorso, Corso, who set up the first vineyards in Tasmania, was chair of the Opera House committee at the time. And he tells this wonderful story that they'd all decided uh, on the last four entrants. And a European judge the final judge was late, flew in and said, is that all you have? And they said, well, the other, the dismissed entries are over in that box. And he went over and flicked through and lifted out, Utzins, and said, how could you have missed this? Brought it back to the table, or otherwise we would have a Covent Garden style opera house on the, <laughs> on the same place. Excellent. But I yes. wanted to, we're about to, I uh, have a conversation here, but you um, have got this lovely story about Fraser Island. What's yes. its proper name? Kigari. Kigari. Yes. Uh, and the fact that it's created out of the Blue Mountains, were I'm cutting corners here, the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area. What on earth did you mean by that? Yes, I, uh, look, it's very... One of the pleasures of life
1: is to um, understand how our world works. You know, we can never all understand everything, but um, I've become really interested in, more and more as I've got older, interested in geology and geological processes, and deep time as part of that. Um, so, when I was looking at how the sediments that made up Fraser Island, where they came from, I found that they were washed out of the Hawkesbury. It was one of the sources. So I imagine the possibility that a you know some pebble up there in the mountains had been washed down the stream. And that process takes thousands of years, of, you know, for a rock to be eroded in the streams and sometimes it gets caught up in potholes and so on, and and eventually it gets to the mouth of the river and then offshore and then the the various currents uh, move it around grinding it even more etc and then the longshore current shifts it north and those sediments ended up in southern queensland off the coast and they produced some of the islands there morton island etc and some of them went whistling past there and ended up at harvey bay and so I, I, it, it struck me as a, a lovely connection to make and I do that in a couple of other chapters. I think about how this site is connected to other sites because this is part of that big story. We are all connected. You know, this is really interesting. And, and if I found it really exciting to find a connection between this World Heritage Site and another one. So not. I'm not inventing it, it's just I'm highlighting it <laughs> it's a great story as a nice connection
0: to have yeah. you know oh peter that's, that's out there that's just uh lovely, and there's many such as you've just referred to, other stories like that in this beautifully written book. It is so accessible um the world heritage process and its history is quite arcane in a way, but uh here it is very, very simply laid out, and the process of Australia getting it's 19, now 20, World Heritage Sites for their cultural and their natural values. It's a, it's a fabulous uh, book, both in presentation, the maps are easy, the, the wildlife, the flora, and uh, the history of each site, but it, that indigenous component predominating, uh, as it should, uh, a beautiful, beautiful production. Congratulations, and I've got great pleasure in launching the World Heritage Sites of Australia, produced by the National Library of Australia. Thank you, yeah. And before um, people can get a copy to go and look for that picture of the (laughs) meat-eating kangaroo, (laughs) who'd like to um, ask Peter about this book in any way? Yes, sir. very good question there is when do, where, when do you think the Borough yep. Peninsula, now this is the Dampier Peninsula by another, in west central western coast of Western Australia might be World Heritage. Why would it be World Heritage? Yes, a really
1: good question. Um, I'm glad you raised it because that's something that we could see on the horizon quite soon. When I was a member of the Australian Heritage Council, uh, uh, the Minister of the day asked the council to go and have a look at Borough and Advised the minister what's, whether what's there, Peter? the Barrow Peninsula, whether it was worthwhile. So what what we have on the Borough Peninsula, is the world's greatest aggregation of stone carvings, absolutely brilliant. So
0: maybe a million of them. Yes. Yeah.
1: And well, there's a sad juxtaposition, of course, because the West Australian government, in its wisdom, decided to locate on that same peninsula an industrial development. And so you have this harsh boundary between an industrial development, which shouldn't have been there, it should have been elsewhere, but it was put there by political decision, not sensible decisions. And there it is now, um, three or four huge industrial facilities right on the border of this ancient stone carving. I think the
0: last one that just opened is an explosives factory, isn't it? Uh, there, were, there were lots of suggestions and in fact uh, I, I do remember
1: having a discussion with uh, the former premier there, Carmen Lawrence, who was strongly opposed to that and uh, she said it was an unnecessary decision, there were other options that was just made. Yeah. But the local people of course are uh, strongly protective of this and, and the value of it is that there's nothing else like this anywhere in the world. This extensive series of long etchings and you don't have to be an expert to uh, appreciate them but they do go over a long period of time the styles change uh, there's been some excellent archaeological study of the site so there's a lot of good information uh, you can go there and see that, that there are thylacines there carved on these rocks
0: as and there are in Kakadu thyl- well,
1: they're yeah, painted yeah, up there yeah, painted there and the, mm. you know it tells us once again about this diverse spread of the continent of lots of life that have now retreated because of the drying conditions as we, as we migrated north and the country got drier, then the opportunities for um, species to stay in one place vanished. So the question though was how soon? Well, I think it, it could go very soon because the technical information we need is there. It's been done by the expert uh, archaeologists, as well written up, There was a a very good advice, but you see it's not even on our tentative list. So the rules that the committee have put forward are that a site must be on the tentative list at least 12 months before it will be considered by the committee. You can't nominate a site that's not on your tentative list. And that's because some countries have been recalcitrant they have not been putting forward a tentative list of appropriate sites they might nominate down the track. And Australia is a really bad example. We, we do very poorly. Our tentative list at the moment <coughs> is three sites, no, two now because Budge BIM is now a world heritage site, so we've got two left, and they're both extensions of existing sites. So no new material. Even though we have wonderful agreement across the science community, conservation community of many other sites that could go on the list and, and you, you could say we probably have another 20 sites about which we know sufficient to put forward uh, enough material to go on the tentative list. Um, we haven't done it but I, the good news, I must have a good news statement here somewhere but the good news is that the federal department <coughs> is, is uh, planning to run a workshop to build up Australia's tentative list. Now that's the first positive word on that that I've heard in a long time. So yeah. I'm hoping that happens soon and and that should then flow on to expanding our tentative list. Personally I would like to see maybe 15 or 20 sites on that tentative list. India, you know, not our size, smaller, India has 59 sites on its tentative list. So, you know, we, we could, there's room for us to expand our tentative list, Bob. There's only yeah. two on it now.
0: We'll go for it. Well, we should go for it, <laughs> that's right. Who's next? Um, I.
1: And um, what's a site that you think should be put on the tentative list that isn't yet?
0: What should be put on the tentative Which list? Which
1: sit- sites? The... Okay, yeah. well, there are some sites that um, uh, the government in the past has done work on. For example, Cape York Peninsula, the government asked for work to be done on that. I did a lot of work with a number of other scientists on Cape York Peninsula. A lot of that material is ready. Uh, The last bit is consultation with uh, traditional owners, so that should be part of any process, of course, is working with traditional owners. But um, other examples of sites um, might expand out to The Lake Eyre Basin, in this wonderful pattern we have, which is now in full flood at the moment, so the channel country, the rivers flowing from uh, northern Queensland down into Lake Eyre, uh, that is a a wonderful scene. The Flinders Range, there's so much material there, particularly in fossil material, but others as well. and uh, in, in the book, there's a, a table which has all the sites which various people and scientists and organisations have put together and asked to go on the list. One of the gaps in that, I should mention, by the way, is um, uh, colonial culture. And I understand that Australia ICOMOS has been working on developing up sites that would be appropriate to go in that uh, celebrate some of the colonial cultural attributes of Australia. So mostly our cultural sites, apart from the three uh, that that are largely colonial, purely colonial, which is Sydney Opera House, um, the exhibition uh, building in Melbourne and the convict sites, those are three clearly colonial sites. all the other cultural sites in Australia relate to Indigenous culture.
0: Mm.
1: And Budge Bim, however, is the only site that is purely Indigenous culture. Uh, you would say, well, what about... Um, uh, no, what's the, f- the first, first one that was uh, listed in 1981? Sorry, just... Well, Lakes. Well, Lakes. Mm. Yes, but that includes natural heritage as well as cultural heritage, yes. so it's, it's not just simply cultural heritage, it's natural yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm. Who's next? Over here. What can we as citizens do to get more sites on the tentative list? Um, could you? I just didn't what,
0: catch what, that. What can we as citizens do to get more sites on the tentative list, and I'd add to that, or to get the tentative list made into the get movement on it, because you, uh, uh, Peter's got a, a very good table, as he says, at the, at the back here, of sites that um, should be uh, being dealt with but aren't. Um,
1: I, I don't know. It's a, the question you ask is really well directed at our political leaders because it, it does take an appetite to do something from our political leaders. These are decisions that are inherently political and they've been slightly undermined by the decision made some time ago by the national government that it wouldn't put forward a site for consideration unless the state government first proposed it. So now we have state governments who have pretty much total control over all the threats to these sites through alternative land use, being the ones that decide whether
0: it should go forward. That was the Howard government that put that.
1: Yes, it's a a backing away from a national perspective. And World Heritage, the way I think about World Heritage is it's it's, um, thinking globally and acting locally. So local for us is our nation, that's Australia. We, it's, it's our country that is, is part of that, mm-hmm. not just the local people, but your question is, well, what about our local actions? What can we do? We can act locally. So talk it up, encourage, talk to... A I, lot of it, our members of parliament don't properly understand these things, so, you, you know, you can help them.
0: Maybe send a copy of the book to your local member. <laughs> 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 An interesting thing in there, Peter points out, is that uh, of the eight states and territories, the only one that doesn't have a World Heritage Site is the ACT. But of course, there have been moves for the uh, Australian Alps, including yeah. uh, the Brindavellas, to be listed. I don't know why that hasn't progressed, but right. uh, there you go. It's, it, on, it's on the list yet. We've got time for one more question. Here in front. World Heritage Listing improved the management of these special places, and is Australia succeeding in its endeavors to protect World Heritage? Is Australia being successful in protecting World Heritage? I'm glad you're answering that question. I
1: I thank you very much for that question because it was part of the response that I was in my head to the previous question, so not and it's not just about getting more sites, it's about managing those sites better and to properly address the threats that they face. So um, I think there, there is a big gap. So some might say, well, wh- why get any more nominations when we can't manage the ones we've got? And um, I think there are two very different problems. One, one is we, we do need to Uh, have more properties on the list so that we gain protection, better protection for those sites. So the the longer we leave them, the more there will be alternative uses for that land and the more damage will be done so they will lose their value one way or another. Your question is more about how we handle the existing sites and how we're dealing with the threats. For many of our sites, a principal threat is climate change. That's something that is out there already transforming some of the sites and yet we're struggling with getting commitment to deal with those. Uh, another threat is from biosecurity. Our failure is biosecurity. You know, As a person who's looking from the outside though, Um, I become completely non-plus when I hear politicians talking about how we're going to protect our borders and spending billions of dollars worrying about our borders when we have deliberately undermined our ports and let organisms in that should never have got to Australia. So if we can't manage our ports, you know, we've given up basically, so a lot of the threats in some of the world heritage areas are invasive species, many of which have come in in the last few years. It's not as though these are things that are left over from the early settlers. These are species that are arriving and they're not being picked up by our biosecurity. Uh, Most of the containers never get inspected because we've had efficiency on the waterfront. This is an unintended consequence as we get a lot more invasive species getting through the net. Is that good thinking? Well, a lot of those invasive species are going to decimate our natural environment. So we haven't really counted the full cost of allowing the shipping companies to become more profitable. (coughs) The offset to that is that our governments are now spending billions more in eradicating invasive species that we shouldn't have had. So the short answer is we're not doing enough the commitments for most of the World Heritage Areas have not increased with the threats that they're facing and some of those threats of course are just from success of the World Heritage Places attracting more visitors, so visitor management itself can be an issue but more and more people going into World Heritage Areas means more risk from biosecurity, more invasive species
0: coming. Well Well, on, uh, on that note I have to say Peter that I'm glad you've been an invasive species in these World Heritage areas because your uh, 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 work is a very important brick in the wall that is needed to not only extend our World Heritage appreciation, our pride in it, but also the protection of it. And uh, this is a book that's full of love for this uh, wonderful country uh, and its culture and its natural amenity and uh, not least its wildlife. It's beautifully put together, it's just so eminently readable. It's a fabulous gift if you want to give somebody... um, uh, if you want to have early purchase for Christmas, this is the ideal gift. But um, Peter is now going to be available to sign the book, if you'd like to purchase one, we're going out to the foyer, so uh, please feel free and um, while he's here, take this opportunity to um, have uh, a word with Peter or to get his signature on the book and uh, I'd like you, ladies and gentlemen, to join with me in congratulating Peter Valentine on this fabulous book on Australia's World Heritage.